I was chuckling to myself as Habib began because he started talking about food. Uh, and I always seem to be hungry. Um, but I, I have this, I thought as we begin, I, I wonder if you've, you've heard the phrase, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. And if that's the case, I should look like a cup of coffee and a steak, I guess. Um, but it, it's all a phrase that we've heard of. And to a, to a certain extent, there's an element of truth to it, that you are what you eat. That if we eat a, a, a very bad, unhealthy lifestyle, um, then it is going to affect us. My, um, my undergrad is in sport and exercise sciences, uh, so nutrition was a large part of that training. And one of the first papers I had to write was on the balance between exercise and nutrition. And, and the, the conclusive thing behind research is that nutrition plays the largest part in, in our health uh, and, and in our, certainly in terms of our ongoing battle with weight. You are what you eat. But I think actually the reality of that is far more serious. And I would propose to you tonight that you are what you worship. That you are what you worship. One author said, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. And I think that what we worship fundamentally affects our lives. If we worship ourselves if we worship our family or our kids, our wife or our husband, if we worship any false idol, anything, that will fundamentally affect how we live, how we act, who we are. And tonight, we're going to see the, the, the serious implications of that. Tonight, we hopefully are going to orient ourselves to worshipping the right one, the right thing. And obviously, that is God, the God of the Bible, the one true God, not a God, not an option amongst the plethora of gods, the God. We're going to do this uh, by focusing out of First Peter. So if you'd like to turn there, and we're going to be in chapter 1. Now Peter, as you might know, is writing this letter to believers who have been dispersed uh, due to persecution prior to the burning of Rome. In AD 64, he writes to believers who are dejected and distressed by the trials that they're going through. In verse 6, you see that. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. They have been ousted from their homes. They have been dispersed across the nations. And they are a hurting people. There are people who need encouragement. And Peter tells us in chapter 5 and verse 12, the reason he wrote this letter is that. He says, he's writing, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He writes to these hurting people, stand firm, be encouraged. By what? By the grace of God. So Peter writes to the believers in Asia Minor and he tells them, stand firm, people. I know you're hurting. I know you're going through tough times. I know things look bleak. I know that you're hurting and scattered and alone. But he says, don't give up. Don't give up. Persevere. And he says to persevere because all that he has written is true. And the grace of God has been poured out on those believers. Now, we're not in this situation, are we? We're not. Just, uh, scattered, we're not persecuted in that same way, we haven't been kicked out of our homes, we're not being thrown in prison yet, uh, at least not in this country, uh, for, for what, what we believe. But whether we go through those particular circumstances or not, we all go through these times of, of discouragement and struggle. Maybe right now we're discouraged by the way society looks, by the way society is going. Particularly in the US and the UK with liberal agendas growing and, and pushing further in and pushing further against Christian worldviews and what the Bible teaches. Being pushed down the throats of the countries that, that, that are there. It can be discouraging. It can be distressing. Especially as we think about where all that might go. Maybe uh, we can be discouraged or distressed by our own circumstances in our own lives, our own churches, our own friendships, our own families. But here today in Burbank, California, we need to hear Peter's words and we need to allow them to speak 
to our hearts, to sink into our hearts and our minds and follow his call to be encouraged and to stand firm. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. And Peter begins by reassuring his audience of their status as chosen ones. They are chosen. According to the will of the Father, by the work of the Holy Spirit, through the actions of Jesus Christ, the Son. And he finishes with this amazing comment. He says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, this might just sound like a nice opening to a letter. We hear lots of these kind of phrases, particularly in the epistles. But it's more than that. Peter is actually setting up what comes next. What he's about to do is articulate that grace and peace for us. And he begins with worship. He begins with worship. And this really, uh, this next phrase, verse 3, forms our kind of first point and the purpose of what we're going to discuss this evening. That we must worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is going to be our first point, that we must worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a phrase which is a call to worship. It's an exhortation to all who read the letter that the God of the Bible is to be worshipped and praised. Peter says, in the midst of all that you're dealing with, remember who he's writing to, these persecuted believers, in the midst of all you're dealing with, you must turn to God in adoration. And praise because of all that he has done for you, all that he is. The phrase uh, is a phrase of blessing and it's a blessing towards God. And it's not a new phrase. It's something that we see throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Psalm 119 verse 12, where the psalmist calls out in praise and he says, blessed are you, O Yahweh. Or Psalm 16, 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Now, we actually read this, uh, we read about this in Family Devotions a little while ago. And when we read this, my son asked the question, uh, let me say, what exactly did he say? He said, how can we bless God? And he asked it like this, how can we bless God? And he's absolutely right. Because the reality is, it's such a fantastic question, because what possible blessing can a human add to God? None. Normally, when we see it, blessing is used from God to man. And when, when it's used in that way, that's, that's what it is. God's blessing the person. He's adding something to him. He's giving him something that maybe he's desired, or he's, he's blessing him in some physical way. But it's when it's used from man to God, the lesser to the greater, we recognize that God is perfect and full in and of himself. There is nothing that I can add to God. When God blesses me, he adds to me. He gives me something I didn't have. We can't do that to God. So what does this mean? Well, when we see this, when it's from man to God, what it is, is it's, as I said before, it's a declaration of worship. It's saying God is worthy to be praised. Blessed be God. And this is a call to worship. It's an exclamation of how wonderful God is and how he must be given all the adoration and praise he is due. Deuteronomy 10.21 says this. He is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things. Or remember Revelation 4.11. That amazing scene with the 24 elders and they cry out, worthy are you our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. This is a declaration of worship. Another aspect to that word, blessed, uh, we get it from the actual Greek word. I'm going to tell you the Greek word and see if you can hear the English word in it. It should be fairly clear. Eulogatos. Eulogatos. What English word does that sound like? Eulogy. Exactly. So we can hear it quite clearly, and it's where we get the word from. And that word eulogy is the idea of speaking well of someone. And that, and we do that at funerals, don't we? And it's sad that we don't do it more often. 
Um, but we speak well of someone at their funeral to remember them. And that's what praise is, speaking well of God. And one commentator said it this clearly like this. He said, the devout heart readily eulogizes God. The devout heart, the worshipping heart, readily eulogizes God, speaks well of God. Now, Peter doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us who the object of our worship should be. So this isn't a guessing game tonight. You must worship, and you must worship who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, there in verse 3. Peter's making sure that his readers remember who is in control, and who is the one who is worthy of praise. God. Not a God. Not one of the gods. But their God, the God of the Bible, the one and only God, the one who was there at the beginning and created all things, who willed creation into existence. And it begs the question for us, do we worship God? Do we worship God or do we worship other things? And if we saw the example of Israel throughout the Old Testament, even when they were being faithful, they were still pulled in various directions, weren't they? To worship and tricked into other things. And we've got to ask the question, even if we're a believer today, what is the focus of our worship? Now, in general, if we're a true believer, then yes, we are worshipping God. However, we can be we can be distracted, can't we? And we can be distracted to worshipping other things. And the question we have to ask today is, can we say that he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do we worship him instead of the God of this age? And if we think about the God of this age, and we compare the two, there's no comparison. The God of this world is a weak, insipid God. A God who says, I don't really care what you do. I don't care what you are or who you are. I don't care what you believe. Just come to me. Just come as you are. There are no standards. There's no accountability. There's no need to change. Because I love you just as just as you are. You don't have to do anything for this God. You can live however you want. You can believe what you want. You can live your own truth and just carry on as before. But let me tell you that that God is no God at all. And that if, you, if we worship that God, then we're not worshipping the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, the one who created all things, who flung stars into space by the force of his word, the God who spoke creation into existence, the same God who created man and woman in the beginning, the same God who witnessed that couple fall into sin and carry out his own redemption plan to save the very people who rejected him, the God of the Bible is a holy God and he demands perfection. And knowing that we can't achieve that perfection, he sent his son so that he would be perfect for those who would trust in him and be saved. Don't imagine for one minute that this perfect God, this divine, loving, glorious, majestic, justified, holy God has no standards. Don't be fooled by the narrative of this age that doesn't care about what you say or what you do. The God, the Father is the one who is due praise and worship. He is the one that we turn to through the work of Jesus on the cross. This is who we're praising today. So if you're not praising him, this is a call to turn. To turn from our sin and call out to Christ to forgive us and to give us the salvation that he offers freely. Then this God, the God of the Bible, calls us to do exactly that. But if you are a believer today, many of us are, if you are a believer today, then this is the God that we worship. This should bring joy to our hearts. This is the God that we praise. And he is worthy. He is worthy of that praise, not just because of what he's done, but because of who he is. Not only that, but he is the God who chose believers from before the foundations of the earth. We saw that in verse 2. God, the Father, the initiator of all things, he is the one who sent his Son into the world, as John 1.4 says. So at this point, we might be asking the question, why? Why should I worship God? Maybe you don't know who God is. Maybe you're someone who hasn't accepted Jesus as their saviour. In which case, it makes sense that that we might ask that question if we haven't done that. 
Because as we said before, the world today worships itself. It has made man king and lord over the earth and has made sexuality particularly a key identifier of identity, a key factor of identity. Notice that to those hurting people that Peter's writing to, Peter doesn't say, it's okay. God just wants you to be happy. You just need to think about yourself and follow your heart. If you can just express yourself the way you want to, then and be who you want to be, then all your worries will pass away. That's not what Peter says, is it? What Peter does is point to the true source of true happiness, of true joy, of truth itself, to the God and Father of all things, the God of the Bible. And that God says that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we have deviated from the path of truth to the path of madness. Surely, one can see, one can look around this world and see that things aren't getting better. Man's way has been tried and tested for thousands of years and been found seriously lacking in all areas. The current pull, for instance, towards the LGBTQ agenda has seen, according to research by the Trevor Project, that 45% of youth in that community have seriously considered suicide. That's young people from the ages of 12 to 18. 45%. The pursuit of sex as God has been the downfall From the ages, think of Solomon and how he was derailed by his wives. Think of David, the man after God's own heart, was was tumbled by this pursuit of sexual desire. Not even just that, when we consider the effect of atheism on higher education and the sociological ideas taught there, this idea of the meaninglessness of life. All of this leads not to fulfillment, Or contentment or the ability to weather life's trials, we've seen that. It leads to a life of sadness and pain. And the only answer to this is in Christ. To worship the God of this book. Who is the only one worthy of praise. The only answer is to turn from our lives of sin. To recognize that if we are not in Christ, then we're destined for destruction. That unless we call out to Jesus Christ and believe on the reality of his life, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived that perfect sinless life for the sole purpose of going to the cross to give up that perfect life for the ones that he came to save, to deal with sin and death once and forever. This is why we should worship, especially if we're believers, because this is what we've been saved from. This is why we should submit our lives to Jesus, because he is not just the way, a way, he is the way. In a world of lies, he is the truth. In a world that will lead you to eternal death, he is the life. Maybe it's believers here today. We think, I know I can worship. Remember, our our definition of worship is is every aspect of our lives. What we do, what we say, what we think, how we spend our time. Not just singing or preaching or reading God's word. Worship is everything. And sometimes we think, I know I should, I know I should be better at this, but I just lack motivation. I'm just so tired. I struggle to gain this heart of praise in my daily life. Well, I can imagine that the people that Peter's writing to felt exactly the same way. We can imagine the believers in Israel right now feel the same way. That they are tired and they're in pain. We can imagine the believers all over the Middle East right now, friends of ours in Lebanon who are telling us, they are hurting, they are struggling, they fear for their lives. I am sure that they are tired. And the people Peter was writing to would have felt the same. So it's into this that Peter launches into these amazing next couple of verses. This amazing articulation of the reasons why God should be the one, God should be the source and subject of our worship, and we'll look at this. So really, that was kind of our first main point, and and to summarize it, it's this. If you're a believer today, you must worship God. Because, and we're going to see these three things, the reasons to worship. He is a loving God. You have a living hope and you have a lasting inheritance. So we should worship as believers today because he is a loving God, because you have a living hope and because you have a lasting inheritance. 
Let's just read verses 3 to 5 together and we'll move on from there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. So first of all, we have a loving God. He is a loving God. And we see here in this statement the reality of, of the love of this great God. He shows us by his, lo- his love by causing us to be born again. And this actually is the key thought throughout the section uh, that we're looking at. This idea of being born again. Everything else comes kind of subordinate to this idea. And it's the key reason why we can and should worship God. The only reason we can worship is because we've been born again. And that's also the reason why we should worship. This phrase means that God has done something to us. Right? It's He has caused, he has put into action. He has made something happen. This new birth. This idea of being born again. And it's not an idea that's original with Peter, is it? If we... Think back to John 3 with Nicodemus' interaction with Jesus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and and Jesus, knowing his heart because he knows all men, before he can really articulate himself properly, Jesus says that unless you're going to be born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it clear that he's not talking about a a physical birth, but a spiritual birth. That in order to come into the kingdom of God, one must be made new. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 8 that the way that happens is through the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying here in verse 3 that we worship a God who is so merciful, so loving, that he has caused us to be born again, to be made new, to be given a new life in Christ. And notice the voice that he uses here. This is something active on God's part and something passive on our part. I don't know about you, but when I was born, no one gave me a round of applause. Well done, Ben. Good job. You know, I didn't have anything to do with it. You know, my mum, as we were talking earlier, the mum is the one who needs the round of applause at that point. The baby did nothing. This is a passive act. Being born is is just by definition a passive act. So when we're being born again, it means someone else has to have caused it. It means that it's by God's decision that this has come about. He looked into our sinful, sorry, offensive lives and he stepped into those lives by the power of the Spirit and he saved us. And he gave us the greatest gift that anyone could be given. New life and a relationship with God. Notice how Peter characterizes this act. He says, because of his great mercy. Mercy means kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. Why mercy? Because we're in need. None of us deserve this. Romans 3 paints the picture of the state of mankind. The reality is that we have all rebelled against God. And verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Paul goes on and he gives the consequences of that in chapter 6 verse 23, where he says the wages of sin is death. The reality is that God is so merciful, he doesn't give us the death that we deserve. And that's kind of a definition of mercy. Not being given a punishment that you deserve. And instead, he shows us grace. And the definition of grace is being given something that you don't deserve. (laughs) So mercy is being saved from something that we do deserve, a punishment we do deserve. But grace is being given something that we don't deserve. So we worship this loving, merciful, gracious God who has given us this new life. And he has given us this new life for a reason. That we might have this living hope. Look there in verse 3, the next part of verse 3. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is our second point. That we have a loving God. But we also have a living hope. And we'll see two elements of this living hope. The the purpose and the means. And I'll explain those as we go along. First of all, the purpose. The purpose of of the living hope is the purpose of... Sorry. Living hope is the purpose of being born again. 
Firstly, to a living hope means, to a living hope means that it's the purpose. You can see that there in verse 3. Or it's one of the purposes of the new birth. We need this hope. Why? Because before we had none. Ephesians 2, uh, verses 12 and 13 says this. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the, oh sorry, chapter 2 verse 12. Remember that you were at that last time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So before coming to Christ, there was no hope. No hope of what? Of eternal life. That's the inheritance that Peter talks about in verse 4 of our our passage. And this hope, this living hope that we have, is an expectant hope. It's one that looks forward with great anticipation. But when we use the word hope, we don't mean hope as in, oh man, I really hope that happens. I really hope that, that this thing will come about. Paul uses the word in Acts 27 when he's shipwrecked. And he says, all hope of salvation was abandoned. All hope of rescue was abandoned. This isn't, the, the, the hope that Peter's using isn't a hope of uncertainty. This is the hope of First Timothy 1, which says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope? If Jesus is our hope, then there's no uncertainty. If my future rests with him, then I don't have to be uncertain about anything. Titus 1 reiterates it. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. The hope of eternal life is based on the promises of a God who does not lie. Not like the God of this world who is characterized by deceit and by lying. So there is no uncertainty there. This is not a hope of wish, but a hope of looking forward, of casting my eyes forward. It was something that definitely will happen. We just don't know when. The reality is, though, unless we're in a relationship with Christ... There is no hope. There is no future. There is no joy. There is no heaven. Now, this hope is one that has a particular characteristic. It's a living hope. And this is in, firstly, it's in contrast with the idea of a dead hope, which we mentioned with Ephesians 2. uh, This hope that was non-existent, it was dead. But this hope is alive and well. And that word can also mean enduring. The fact that it's a living hope, it can be an enduring hope. It's not just a hope that's alive and well and looking forward, but it's a hope that endures all trials, all struggles, and all difficulties. So when struggles come, when trials come, do we remind ourselves of the living hope that we have? That the reality of the future that God has promised is set and fixed. That no matter what happens on this earth, you have eternity to look forward to. That must have been a great comfort to those believers who were under such persecution. And Paul says himself, doesn't he, that that the trials of this life are worth enduring for the hope of the cross, for 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 the future that will come. That it's worth standing for Christ in this day and age where people will hate us and go against us and maybe one day put us in prison for what we believe because of what comes later. And Peter, writing to these hurting Christians, says this reality should encourage us, should push us to worship even in the times of the bleakest trial under the most difficult of circumstances. Now the second aspect of the living hope we have though, other than the purpose, is the means. How? How do we have this living hope? By what means did this happen? And he tells us in the verse. He says, um, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the means. That's how this hope came about. Out of death comes life. 
And this is another key element of the gospel. And uh, we're not going to go to it because I actually focused on 1 Corinthians 15 last week when I preached to you guys. And we talked about the importance of resurrection. But remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there is no resurrection, then our hope, our, our belief, our faith is worthless. It doesn't matter. This is a key element of the gospel. This idea of resurrection. And Paul says it so plainly. He says, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. If resurrection didn't happen, then none of what Paul or Peter said means anything. Resurrection, as we said last week, is the key event in Christ's mission because any man can die. But only God can rise from that death having conquered So Peter says here in verse 3 that we are born again through the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection after the fact. Because it's through his death that we too died to our old nature. And in his resurrection we are raised to life, to live with him in this new life. Again, this is just another reason for us to worship this God. Think about all that he has done to buy our salvation. And statements like this realize how important the facts of the gospel are. And how crucial our trust in God's word is. Peter's whole argument here and Paul's whole argument in Romans 6 and then in 1 Corinthians 15 rests on the idea that Jesus, Jesus' resurrection was a literal historical fact. Not a myth, not a nice thought, not symbolism, not kind of spiritual idea, but a physical reality. And I hope that today as we reflect on this living hope that we have, that we can be encouraged by its certainty. By its surety, by the reality that this is a promise from a God that doesn't lie. That doesn't get things wrong, that never fails. Paul believed it, Peter believed it, and for thousands of years since, millions of Christians have believed it. So we need to take joy in this church. This should push us to worship this God. To be encouraged that no matter what we're facing, that we face it alongside a loving God who has given you a living hope. One that will endure. So when we meet the trials of this next week, when we come to the difficulties in our family or we come to the difficulties in seminary or or in our work uh, or or maybe in any other, the reality with regards to health or business or, or finances or anything, Peter is speaking these things to people who've lost everything. And he says, this is where we get our Encouragement. This is where we get our joy. And it should prompt us to worship. Worship should be inherent to us as believers in every aspect of our lives, in every situation. Now our worship is going to look different depending on the situation. Remember, when David's son died, he worshipped. Now I'm pretty sure that worship would have looked very different to the kind of worship on a, after he defeated Goliath. Or the kind of worship on his coronation day. Or the kind of worship when he was in that wonderful place with God. Where where he's walking with him and being God's kind of king to God's people. That worship's going to look different, but it's still worship. Our circumstances shouldn't dictate our willingness to worship our God. Lastly, look at verses 4 to 5. You have a lasting inheritance to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times this is another aspect or another part of the purpose of the new birth that we are given an inheritance and that word obtain isn't actually there in the Greek. It's a helping word um, to give us the sense that's trying to be conveyed. Uh, an inheritance is something that someone receives, something that we get or that is given or obtained, which is why the NASB translates it that way. But if you're reading the ESV, it probably says to an inheritance, which is closer to the meaning. And I like the idea of for an inheritance because it says that we are saved and destined for an inheritance that is to come. What's an inheritance? Well, an inheritance is an expected portion. It's something that we're going to get. Now, obviously, we often think of that when when family or parents die, then we get this inheritance. We see it in the Old Testament when Joshua apportions the land out to the people of Israel. He literally divided it up, as God told him, and gave each tribe their inheritance or their lot. Joshua 11.23 
So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. But the inheritance Peter's talking about is something more than an inheritance of land. This is a heavenly inheritance. Remember the words of Paul in Colossians, and he's speaking to the to slaves. Remember, uh, he's he's given these various mandates out, and, and in Colossians three twenty two and twenty four, he says this: Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Clearly, the reward that they're promised, this inheritance they're promised, is something not given them to, not given to them by men, but by God. And it's something that brings them hope beyond their current situation. Something not of this world. And Peter gives us some more details about this wonderful inheritance we have, and we'll see him very quickly under three headings. What kind of inheritance, who's it for, and how? And I'll repeat those as we go along. So first of all, what kind of inheritance? Verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. So Peter gives these three descriptions of of inheritance, uh, and, and the first one is that it's imperishable. And the idea of imperishable means it's incorruptible. It's, it's unable to decay. Jesus' words in Matthew 6.20 probably ring in our ears. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. An inheritance, this inheritance that we're talking about, is something that cannot be corrupted or stolen or destroyed. The second word is that it's an inheritance that is undefiled. Now, the idea of being defiled is, is something to be, is something that is being coloured or, or painted or stained. Now, at our wedding, I had one request, that we had to have good coffee. At our wedding. Um, so I made sure that we had really good coffee at our wedding. So all the wonderful stuff had happened and we had this lovely reception with our home church and people had made food and it was fantastic. And I went and we went and I got my coffee. And we're walking around. Rachel's there looking wonderful in her dress and I've got my coffee. So I'm, I've got a wife and a coffee. Like what more do I need? Um, and, uh, and someone knocked me and my coffee went over her dress defiled my wife's wedding dress was defiled now fortunately it was only the hem at the very bottom uh so it went down as opposed to all over her because then I, I don't know how long i would have been married if that if that had happened um but that's the idea of defilement this this purity this beautiful dress on a beautiful lady um has been defiled by the coffee it's been stained it's been tainted and the same word is used by the writer of Hebrews to describe Christ. Look at this, Hebrews 7.26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. If the inheritance promised has the same qualities as Christ himself, then it must be something truly wonderful, mustn't it? This inheritance is something pure and unstained like Christ. Not only is it something that will not decay or not be corrupted, but it won't be stained, it won't be tarnished, it won't be soiled in any way. It will remain exactly how it was intended, which leads to the next thing, that it will not fade away. This is the idea of something maintaining its pristine quality, something that won't fade or lose its beauty. One commentator has said this word, this of the word, that the word projects the beauty of a lovely flower that never fades. You know, as seasons change, flowers lose their beauty and they die. And this is the idea of an evergreen, something that never loses its vibrant color. It's, it's ever beautiful. And Peter uses the same word later on in chapter five, verse four. And he says this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
It's another descriptor of the inheritance we have. This unfading crown of glory. A crown that never loses its shine. That never rusts. Never gets cracked or dented or faded. And what does this tell us? It tells us the inheritance we're promised is lasting. It's not temporal like this world. Everything we own will fade away. We will see it disappear. Every worldly creature comfort will lose its appeal. Every fleshly desire will eventually turn to ash. But the inheritance we're promised as Christians who worship the eternal God will never fade. It is eternal. One commentator said, the inheritance is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. It's a great summary, isn't it? The inheritance is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. What a promise. What encouragement to believers who were being persecuted, who had lost all their earthly possessions, who had lost all their earthly comforts, who could put no joy into anything that they physically owned. What did they have left? They had inheritance that was promised to them one day that could never be taken away from them. Which leads us to the next thing. Who's it for? Who's it for? To an inherit, obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. For you. This is for you, Christian. This is for those who trust in Christ. This inheritance, this wonderful crown, this promise of the future, this inheritance of eternal life in Christ is for you. And when Christ hung on the cross, being fully God... I fully believe that he thought in his divine mind of every single one of those he was paying for in that moment. And he thought of you. And he thought of your trials. And he thought of your struggles. And he thought of your pain. He knew your moments of failure. He knew your moments of sin and sadness. He knows the battle that you face even now. And yet, because he had chosen you from before the foundations of the world, before time began, he died for you. And we sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And that's true. But my sin only held him there in as much as he wanted to be there to save me from that sin. Sin had no power over him. The inheritance is reserved in heaven for you because of the will of Christ. And although it doesn't say explicitly, who's doing the reserving? Who has reserved it in heaven for you? God. The one that we worship. The Father. He is the one who has reserved this for you. He is the one who keeps hold of your inheritance. This most wonderful truth of all. Where is it kept? It's kept in heaven. Where no one can touch it. Where it is absolutely secure. Better than Fort Knox. Better than any Swiss bank you could possibly imagine. It is safe and secure because it is under the protection of the eternal God. The natural question then is how? How will this all come about? Look next. Will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. If we're honest... We look at our own lives and we realize how weak we are, how constantly we fail. How on earth are we going to get to the end? How on earth are we going to get to this inheritance? How are we supposed to live this life which leads to this wonderful end? Well, Peter gives us an incredible piece of information that must have blessed the persecuted church in in Asia Minor no end. Here it is. You are protected by God. And it makes sense, right? We know full well that we can't live the Christian lives on our own steam or by our own willpower. We need him. And Peter says, yes, he is the one protecting you with his power. The word for protect there literally means to guard or protect something. It contained the idea of a garrison being stationed inside a city to protect it from invaders. Except this time it's God himself who is doing the protecting, not a human army. It's the same word used in Philippians 4, 7, which says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This verse gives us an idea of what God's protecting us looks like, doesn't it? The peace of God, which will guard our hearts and minds. 
One commentator said this about the idea of peace. He says, the peace which God gives, the peace here particularly referred to, is that which is felt when we have no anxious care about the supply of our wants. And when we go confidently and commit everything into the hands of God. God will guard and protect us through giving us a peace of contentment in him that Paul talked about in that same chapter in Philippians. Where Paul talks about being content in all things, in all circumstances. And I think that's, I think the most vivid image we have of God's protection is in the book of Job. Very familiar to us. Here we see a full frontal assault on Job by Satan. And despite losing all his worldly possessions, Job was preserved. Why or how? Through his faith in God. And that's exactly what Peter says, isn't it? The power of God works in us. Look there what he says. He says, protected by the power of God through faith. This shows us that the whole work is entirely a work of God from start to end. In verse 1, believers are chosen. And here in verse 5, they're protected. And all the way in between, God is working and acting. Well, some might say, well, it's, it's through my faith. That's something I do. But we know that Ephesians 2 tells us that that faith itself is a gift from God. You didn't do anything to get it. That faith didn't come from you. That faith was given to you by God. So from start to finish, this whole work is a work of God. So what we see here is an incredible picture of God's faithfulness to his children. And doesn't that give us confidence? It gives us confidence that if we are his, if we are given our lives over to him and been born again... He protects us for the purpose of blessing us and bringing us to our wonderful inheritance that awaits one day. But there's a final aspect of this verse we need to consider before we finish. Look there in verse 5. tells us what we're protected for. We're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Ultimately, we worship this loving God who has given us a living hope and a lasting inheritance. And he protects us for what is to come, which is salvation. Now, as wonderful as this is, you might be thinking, "Ah, but I already have salvation. I'm already a believer. I'm already saved. And that's true. Your salvation was achieved by Christ on the cross once forever. And nothing else can be added or taken away from it, as Hebrews says. However, Peter says that this is a salvation that has yet to be revealed and won't be until the last days, until the end of time. So what is this salvation and what is it a salvation from? Well, we know that this is something that is future and yet to be revealed. So therefore, it makes sense to say that the salvation we're protected for and in the light of is a final and complete salvation that will take us from this earth and see us completely and utterly saved once and for all. And you often hear people say, I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved, right? Uh, There's nothing left for Christ to do. There's no more acts that need to be done to save us. We are saved. But we still are under the the, the attack of sin. We still have sin to deal with. We still have this world to deal with. So there will be a final and complete consummation of the salvation one day when we're in heaven. That, that, That when sin can no longer affect us, when we are glorified finally, and we will be completely beyond any attempt or any difficulty or any struggle or any trial or pain or tear or sadness, sin will no longer be able to affect us. We will truly be saved. And what an encouragement to the persecuted church in Asia Minor to know that no matter what happens, one day they will be out of reach of the people who are attacking them, who have taken their children, who have taken their homes, who have taken some of their lives. And for us today, we have a God who loves us so much that he put this plan into action to save us. And he doesn't just protect us here on earth through our faith and guide us on our path through this life, but he has also prepared an eternal place of protection for us. An inheritance that can never fade, never be tarnished, never be taken away, that is safe and secure because it is bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. Do we need any more ammunition to worship? Right? Do we need any more reason to give thanks to this God? That this isn't just 
anyone or anything. This is the God that we worship, the God who created all things, the God who has done all of this that we have mentioned tonight, the God who looked at us in our spiritual death, in our being enemies of him, who hated him, and he reached into our lives and he saved us. So if there's someone who doesn't know Jesus, who hasn't accepted their sin and recognized they need a savior, they need to understand their life is not acceptable to him unless they change, unless Christ changes their heart, unless he causes you to be born again to a new life, a new relationship with him. And we need to reach out to those people in our families, in our, our workplaces, our friends, our acquaintances. We need to show them why we worship. And that this is a free gift. This is something that, that if they come to Christ, he will in no ways turn them away. But as we close today, as believers in Christ, look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 for the result. If you're a believer in Christ, in this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In what we've just articulated. The gospel. The gospel. Your great inheritance, your loving God, your living hope, your lasting inheritance. You are a child of God and therefore an heir to the estate of God. And one day you will be with him in glory and you will see him as he is and there will be no more pain and no more tears. But in the meantime, we need to persevere. We must persevere. And live in the light of the great hope that we have. And we worship our great God for who he is and for all he has done. And we worship with every aspect of our lives. We, we get it wrong and we fail, but we must worship with our thoughts and our words and our actions. With every intent of our heart. With everything that we do. And we have to remember that it is God that we worship. Not ourselves, not this world, not other things that our hearts would lead us to. We worship this great God. Let's pray. Father, we've been reminded tonight about how much worship we owe you. We owe you everything. We owe you our entire existence. We owe you our lives. We owe you our, we owe you our fealty. We owe you our devotion. We owe you our love. We owe you our uh, possessions, we owe you our jobs, we owe you our worship, we owe you our praise, we owe you everything. In the full understanding that you don't need any of it, that we add nothing to you, but you delight to see in your children glorify you as we should. Help us as we go out into this next week and, and the next weeks of our lives. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, in every aspect of all that we do. Help us to desire to worship you more. Help us to have opportunities to worship you more. And help us to be able to show those around us why they should worship you too. Why they should give up their lives for something that is so much better. For something that lasts beyond the finite aspects of this world. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.